This is Francie from Portland, Oregon. My husband and I are eating as much plant-based foods as we can, and we totally enjoy them. Uh, we do have an occasional hamburger. We're in our 60s, and we just want to live a healthy lifestyle. Hi, my name is Michaela, and I'm calling from Scotland. I just decided to test out plant-based diet, and I cannot square the moral side of eating meat with the actual impact on the animals that are sentient beings. They're aware of their surroundings. They experience happiness. I can't participate in that. I'm a vegetarian because it's better for the planet. It's safer for my kitchen. <laughs> and yeah, I just feel so much healthier with all these veggies. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Alicia Kennedy has spent much of her career reporting on the politics of food, of what we eat, and the consequences those choices have for the planet. And she's chronicled that research, including the often overlooked radical roots of plant-based eating, in a new book. It's called No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. Our producer, Rahima Nasa, spoke with Alicia about this history and the question of whether we can pursue a different future for our climate by changing what we eat. And I'm going to share her conversation with you this week. We're not taking calls during the show, but as always, you can still talk to us about anything you hear. Just go to notesfromamerica.org, look for the record button, and leave us a voicemail right there. Just remember to include at least your first name and where you're calling from. Okay. Here's Rahima. For the last few years, I wanted my values to match what I eat. It's just I couldn't decide what I wanted to be. A flexitarian? Vegan? Vegan curious? Plant-based? Does it even matter? I first started thinking about these terms early in the pandemic. A global health emergency and a supply chain crisis seemed like a good time to make some changes. Because... It was more clear than ever that eating meat wasn't going to be sustainable. Lucky for me, it was a good time to make these changes because there's so many good options available. Around the corner, there's a plant-based deli that sells a delicious buffalo chicken wrap made of seitan instead of chicken. There's a vegan bakery that can make croissants without butter that are so good you can't tell. My local grocery store now has endless options for non-dairy yogurt. And listen, to be fair, I do live in Brooklyn. This would be the place where you would find so many plant-based options. But even when traveling outside the city, I noticed that there are more and more things to eat for vegans at fast food restaurants like Burger King, Dunkin' Donuts, and McDonald's. Thanks to the rise of alternative meat companies— Having these so readily available feels like a good thing and better for the planet than eating a hamburger made of beef, right? 
I think what's getting lost is that these companies are selling themselves based on the ease of their product and the ease of this switch that people can make without really interrogating those deeper aspects of agribusiness and the food system that are really causing a lot of harm. That's Alicia Kennedy. She used to be a strict vegan, but now she eats a plant-based diet. She's been writing about plant-based eating in the U.S. for a long time. And Alicia set me straight. You know, these are still based on monocrop agricultural systems. These are still, you know, intellectual property that is owned and profited from. These are often companies that are still, you know, owned by big meat companies as well, like Tyson or Smithfield. These folks have gotten their their money into ultra-processed plant-based faux meat products. And so we're kind of not seeing a deeper switch in terms of transforming the food system toward ecological well-being, farm worker and labor well-being. We're not seeing these companies that want to be in fast food restaurants ask these fast food giants to also change their practices around sourcing other ingredients or increasing wages for workers and that sort of thing. Like conditions for everybody aren't increasing simply because more people are eating a plant-based burger. So it really shows the limits of what it means to get into the mainstream if it doesn't really change the way the system is working at large. Yeah, a lot of these companies are using the fact that or promoting the fact that eating plant-based is better for the planet, but they're not actually really doing anything. (laughs) I think that's also why it's so important to interrogate what companies mean now when Mm -hmm. they're saying, we're plant-based, we're going to feed the world, we're going to save the world. Like, we already tried this, and all it did was get swallowed up and co-opted and sold back to everybody at a very expensive price. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between what people are saying is plant-based eating, like the impossible meats, beyond meat, and, like, just being a vegan? It's so interesting because these really are... They are synonyms in a lot of ways, but plant-based, because it doesn't have as strict a meaning as vegan, has been able to be kind of like squirrely about what it really means and what it really signifies. There are items at the supermarket in the freezer aisle you could pick up and they'll say they're plant-based, but they'll have an egg in them or they'll have milk fat or something like that. So for me, I've always thought of plant-based as something that kind of just bridges the gap between vegetarian and vegan. And, you know, vegan also has had this bad cultural connotation. And so going back to the 90s, folks have used plant-based in certain organizations to differentiate themselves from that kind of vegan baggage. And we've seen that it kind of works. Like, I would call it a bit of greenwashing to use the the phrase plant-based on things like Impossible Burgers or Beyond Meat because... You know, they're not being very clear about their sourcing and what's going on. That's where I get, like, kind of conflicted, too, about, like, an Impossible Burger being available at, like, a fast food restaurant. Because, like, now my dad knows what an Impossible Burger is. And it's, like, something he would try because it's at a place that is legible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How do we negotiate that or balance that? Yeah, it's one of those things where it's not really up to the individual to fix. It's, I do think that, you know, having the Burger King Impossible Burger accessible, legible to a huge amount of people is 100% a good thing, especially if we 
were doing things that would ensure that these Impossible Burgers were made, you know, Mm -hmm. in line with some good ecological principles, some good labor principles. Like, there was transparency on that level. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to say what the future of this kind of eating could be. Because we're in a kind of liminal space in terms of where we are, where we've been and where we're going. Because we have seen the the stock and the availability and the of plummet of impossible and beyond. And we're seeing people eating more meat again. And, you know, that's kind of not how to go forward. And, <laughs> and so um, in terms of climate change. And so we're at a real precipice in terms of how do, how do we change people's behavior around meat But the problem doesn't lie with individual choices. You know, individual choices have a role to play insofar as they influence the collective. But it's about subsidies for meat and dairy and industrial animal agriculture. It's about, you know, how little the government cares about breaking up agribusiness and meat process, how much leeway we give these massive companies and allow them to take advantage and be still the cheap option in the supermarket, you know, and even when there are smaller companies making food and getting on the shelves in the supermarket, eventually you're going to see a big company undercut that and, you know, get themselves out there for cheaper. And so it's 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 not the individual struggle. It's a political struggle. Plant-based eating as a political act actually goes back decades. Hippies, activists, punks, Groups typically on the fringe typically reject the status quo, including what they eat. So in the middle of the 20th century, people started to have more of a consciousness about a lot of things. I mean, we saw Silent Spring from Rachel Carson in 1964, which was really ringing alarm bells around environmental crises. You have the Vietnam War that's causing, you know, huge demonstrations, a huge youth movement against the draft and against, you know, war in general. And then you have things like the population bomb coming out, saying that one day, you know, there's going to be too many people on the planet to feed. Uh, You have the civil rights movement, where there was a strong pull toward vegetarian and vegan food as a way of sort of controlling one's own nutrition, controlling one's what goes in one's own body. And all of these things were happening and and these, these seeds were being planted. And then in 1971, we see Francis Moore LePay publish the book Diet for a Small Planet, which it, it talked about the world's food system as a protein factory in reverse, where, and this is still true, we use 80% of farmable land to produce food for livestock that that provides only 18% of calories. And this was a big deal because she was making it about hunger. She was making it about how actually there will not be an overpopulation problem on the planet and there won't be hunger if we were growing food in a different way, producing food in a different way, and distributing it in a different way, in a way that prioritized everyone actually being fed. And so that was a very revolutionary moment. It was also that year when um, Stephen Gaskin and Ina May Gaskin formed the Farm Commune in Summertown, Tennessee. So it was, you know, all this kind of interest in the counterculture and in how how people should live and this kind of rejection of that 50s, like, Americana, American dream notion really fomented in this 1970s sort of, like, 
hippie countercultural rejection of the ways in which the American food system had been built. And so these folks were the ones who kind of made it mainstream eventually to eat brown rice, to make tempeh, to eat tofu and all of these things. And, and they brought them into the white American mainstream. And you know, now we see, and, and this is a common refrain, right, that the, the boomers who were hippies are now like the CEOs <laughs> with yachts. And so, you know, it, the same thing happened to the food. You know, the food was really successful and really important for its ability to feed the world cheaply at, without a huge ecological impact. And then it becomes something you have to go to Erewhon to get. Erewhon itself started out as a natural food store, and now it's where you go get a $25 smoothie. And so all of these things... <laughs> Adaptogen city. Exactly. So like all of these ideas that really came about because of a desire to make life better for folks are luxury items now. Mm -hmm. And it's a really big switch. So what can the future be if we continue doing things that way. Let's put a pin in the future for just a moment. When we come back, more on the history of plant-based eating and the people who helped shape it. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab-American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. And I can't wait to hear from you. It's Nose from America, and I'm not Kai Wright. I'm Rahima Nasa, one of the producers on the show. Alicia Kennedy takes us on a trip back in time in her new book, No Meat Required, to help us better understand what the plant-based movement in the U.S. stood for when it first started. And the counterculture of the 60s played a big role in that. Never before have the young set the pace as they do now. Rock music is the basic ingredient of the hippie life. So too are drugs. I don't want to be settled down, but I want to just sort of try things out. I think that sex is just much groovier when there's love. But there's nothing wrong with just sex for sex. As revolutionary fervor grew, the student leaders called the country's whole way of life into question. 
Among these hippies was Stephen Gaskin, a charismatic new age philosopher of sorts. In the 60s, he held classes on Monday nights at San Francisco State. These classes got so popular that he eventually had to move to a bigger venue. It's very cultish in in its beginnings. I <laughs> I mean, yeah, communes and somehow always end up like that. Yes, but there there were a lot of communes in this time, and so they were they all got on some school buses and <laughs> they traveled from California and found land that could they could buy for cheap in Summertown, Tennessee, and this is where they established the farm commune, and they they still exist. There's still folks there. They still have a tempe lab. They're still publishing books. In and so they, they still are, you know, doing their counterculture work. So what was countercultural cuisine? Um, how would you describe it? So counterculture cuisine, I would best define it by looking at something like the Farm Vegetarian Cookbook that they put out in the mid-70s through their own publishing house. And it was a book that was revolutionary for its time. We would look back on it now and be like, ugh. But they were eating rice. They were eating a ton of soy. They were growing soy. They were making coffee from soy. They were making whipped cream from soy, from tofu. Like, they were, you know, just using soybeans for whatever they could possibly get out of them. And this was a big thing for the counterculture was soy and its potential. But this was a global kind of interest because soybeans have been discussed since the 60s, since the 70s as, you know, the crop that can feed the world and can feed the world protein. And, you know, but they were also eating, you know, bread. They were making their own bread. There's it was it was also about, you know, getting back to whole wheat flour versus mm-hmm. white flour. It was it was about this idea that the processing of foods had removed something essential mm-hmm. and that by putting it back in we would kind of restore ourselves as well to some sort of better state of being and living. Meanwhile, black activists made the connection between plant-based eating and the fight for racial justice. There was also within the civil rights ideology toward a plant-based diet a desire to break away from the sort of the U.S. diet, but for different reasons, because this was a diet built upon enslavement and on, on, on enslaved cooks, too, and, and on their wherewithal and their talent. And so there was this desire to break away from a way of eating, a style of eating that had so much of that legacy tethered to it. And so there was a rejection of pork and a rejection as well. There was Malcolm X gave a speech where he said that he would see growing up how much joy white people around him would take in the hunt and that it was to see folks who took a lot of joy in killing. He made that connection between slavery, between Jim Crow and between um, eating meat. Other civil rights leaders embraced plant-based eating as a natural extension of a commitment to nonviolence. Coretta Scott King, who had been inspired by her son Dexter, who had been inspired by another activist, Dick Gregory, a comedian. He used his platform to speak up about social issues like segregation, the Vietnam War. When he got to that little section that said occupation, I would just write murderer. That sounds funny, but you know, we would never be permitted by law to draft a murderer into the army to send him to Vietnam to kill Viet Cong. 
and even the American diet. Yeah, a lot of people hook the beef like like drug addicts hook the dope. Yes, beef addicts. So, in 1973, Dick Gregory's Natural Diet for Folks Who Eat, Cooking with Mother Nature, came out. And it's recently been reissued as well, which I think shows the trajectory of of plant-based thinking, kind of understanding its roots in a deeper way. Um, And this was also – this was a vegan cookbook, and it had its – it grounded its ideology in, in the civil rights movement, in black liberation, and this was not uncommon. I interviewed Bryant Terry, who is a cookbook author. He wrote Afro Vegan. He edited the book uh, black, black Food. And he told me that, you know, he's had so many mentors in the food movement like Alice Waters or, you know, Michael Pollan or Francis Moore LePay. But what was has always been more influential to him was that when he was growing up in Tennessee, the folks around him who were drinking green juice and who were growing their own food were his his relatives and his neighbors. And this was never to him a white ideology to eat well and to eat from the land. And and also we saw, you know, a lot of this overlap with the civil rights movement because it's this realization that the way the kind of patriarchal global structure treats the land and treats animals has commonalities in terms of how white supremacy functions, in terms of how patriarchy functions. And so these these things were kind of swept under the rug. And even in a lot of texts or documents on counterculture cuisine or on hippie food, it's kind of swept away that a lot of the folks who were adherents to counterculture were white. And and the folks who were protesting the Vietnam War, a lot of them were white. And this is swept under the rug and not really discussed. And I, I did want to name the the reasons why this happened. And a lot of it was that you know, folks who are marginalized are already politicized. They didn't need a grand movement to get themselves involved. Also, the counterculture was predominantly made up of people who kind of came from privilege and were able to and wanted to break from their families in a way and needed to do that in order to live a different life, live an alternative life. Whereas folks who were already marginalized, they were part of their families, they were part of their communities, and they were able to kind of be counterculture within their own lives. They didn't need to kind of go to the commune necessarily in order Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, And they also had to work and they had to sustain their families in a real way that a lot of the hippies did not, you know, they were able to go be barefoot and and make tofu smoothies. So it was a different kind of life that folks were living. Mm -hmm. And despite all of this, um, why do you think that eating plant-based or eating quote-unquote like hippie food is still seen as like something for white people or what gets lost around this narrative around hippie food? I think it's interesting because throughout history, the vegetarian has been thought of as humorless. So when we come to this sort of secular point for vegetarianism and veganism, which I would say is 1970, 1971, you know, when Diet for a Small Planet comes out and the civil rights movement has these attachments to this diet. There's communes like there. It's coming from a place that's not religious all the time. 
I think that that's when we see this narrative kind of break apart into factions because, one, it's just easier to write nice little New York Times stories about, you know, middle-class white families who give up meat and are inspired by Diet for a Small Planet and and that sort of thing. Of course, that's going to be the visible narrative that takes root uh, in U.S. culture. It also makes it easy to continue that narrative of these are the humorless people. These are people you can't relate to. If you establish vegetarianism and plant-based diet as, you know, very far away from acceptability or, you know, as like a weird thing that's a luxury, then it's interesting because it has like so many layers to why it is this this narrative. It's easier to maintain that sort of humorless sense and that sort of like sense of alienation that comes with giving up meat if you say, oh, it's just for those people who are weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also because... That narrative serves agribusiness, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. because to keep the idea that vegetarian or vegan eating is extremely elitist means that folks who don't want to be seen as elitist will not pursue that. And so you're taking out a lot of folks who might already be interested in eating a plant-based diet because they they are being kind of hidden from the intersections mm-hmm. in terms of labor, in terms of, you know, ecology and that sort of thing. Like there are so many progressives that I know who still would eat, you know, Tyson chicken nuggets, even though they would supposedly care about labor rights. And so it's a very um, it's a very, you know, multifaceted problem. But that has changed so much in just the last like half decade. Another big milestone in the movement happens in the 70s with a group of feminists who cared deeply about the environment, the Bloodroot Collective. So the Bloodroot Collective is a restaurant in Bridgeport, Connecticut that still exists today. And it is still run by two of the same people who founded it. And it was founded as a feminist restaurant, explicitly a feminist restaurant, a women's space, a space for consciousness raising where they also sold books and had events and had, you know, different gatherings there in order to, you know, get women together in a time when that was that was a really cool thing to do in the 1970s and you know these were folks who were leaving their husbands they were choosing you know political lesbianism and they were finding out that when they were digging into a feminist ideology that there was also a notion very strong within what's called ecofeminism toward giving up animal meat. And so ecofeminism is a philosophy that suggests the oppression faced by women is similar to the ways in which we have oppressed the earth and its animals in numerous ways. And so the Bloodroot Collective has taken up that sort of philosophy in their approach to food. And so they are, you know, they have always been a vegetarian space, but they have always also been kind of against fat phobia in their space. Um, They have really tried to make vegan food over the years 
writers. Their first couple of cookbooks were called The Political Palette and The Second Seasonal Political Palette. So they also really wanted to serve seasonal and local food as well. And they also always wanted to bring in the foods of the cultures of the women who entered their space. So their cookbooks are quite diverse and and really reference their community. And so that was a really interesting thing that they were able to do with their cookbooks. And so it's a fascinating space for the, the fact that it still exists. It's mm-hmm. one of the few feminist restaurants that still exists in the United States. Mm-hmm. And with the Bloodroot Collective, you know, they're obviously a group of women who are keenly aware of the the trauma around mm-hmm. disordered eating or how do they respond to like that kind of thinking um, when it came to people coming to their restaurant or or just even asking them about it? Well, they have a really great sign over their register that says, out of respect for women of size, do not comment on the richness of the food or the size of anyone's body and that sort of thing. And for me, that was, when I first went there in 2015, that was a real eye-opening moment for me because I was like, oh, wow, like this is a feminist space. There is almost always tension when putting radical feminism in the same space with anything diet-related because American diet culture is anything but radical or feminist. A listener named Dawn in Philadelphia feels this deeply. I have been a vegetarian for 14 years now. I started when I was 13 and it completely started from a terribly unhealthy place. Um, I had ingested all of the beauty standards of the culture at the time. Um, Born in the mid-90s, grew up with, oh, be skinny, low-rise jeans, etc., etc. So I was like, oh, being a vegetarian is the easiest way to restrict. But now I'm a vegetarian because it's better for the planet. I grew up seeing many young people try out veganism to make their bodies smaller, which is a huge departure from veganism's radical roots. How did it even get there? I think that fat phobia, diet culture, these are deep strains in U.S. culture, and they have to be rooted out in various ways. But plant-based eating has kind of glommed onto fat phobia and wellness culture in ways that have been really damaging and really off-putting. And, you know, we saw especially with the raw foods movement, a real attachment to this idea that you could glow or that you could detoxify yourself in some way by eating raw foods. And then you see books like Skinny Bitch, and that was really, really explicitly like, you go vegan because it'll make you skinny. There are a lot of vegans out there who have really tried to shift this narrative, who have really tried to be visible in being fat and being vegan and saying these things are are not mutually exclusive. This rejection of the status quo is what made plant-based eating so attractive to counterculture hippies, civil rights activists, and even anarchist punks. To reject meat, was to take a stand against a fundamental element of this country's national identity. Because meat is really symbolic of what it means to, you know, buy into individualism, to buy into the taking of land, taking advantage of, of a workforce and that sort of thing. Like, if you ask me, these are really tied up in our national ideology. You know, it's growth, it's 
take its use until it can't be used anymore. And and that's all really tied up with the meat industry. You know, it's about getting out into the West and then building the, the railroad and using, and that's how we kind of made meat this staple of folks' diets, beef especially. Knowing all of this history makes me feel hopeful about the path forward. So, where do we go from here? If we did things in a way that was in line with what the planet can handle, in line with what labor can handle, in line with, you know, not cruelly containing animals in factory farms, if we changed those things and put more resources into a diverse array of legumes, grains, vegetables, fruits in a way that supported really, you know, significant regional biodiversity in the United States, there would be less meat. That would, that's it. There would be less meat to eat. And so people are going to have to change no matter what. But also the thing is, is that are we going to see that change happen on that grand scale unless people also start to say, hey, I don't want to be a part of a system that is so exploitative and so destructive? Probably not. So if we want the big cultural shifts and the big political shifts, I think we also have to make the decision to to see the power of what we can do collectively. That was producer Rahima Nasa talking with food writer Alicia Kennedy about the history of the plant-based eating movement. Her new book is called No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hold up. 